Kristen and Justin. Appreciate you guys, uh, kids, and your enthusiasm. All right. All right. I'm going to share a story with you. Really fun story. Um, when Sarah and I got married, we lived here in, Cal- uh, here in New York. We were here for about three years, and then we moved back to California. When we moved to California, we were dirt poor. I mean, just ramen noodles and, you know, I mean, that's, I like ramen noodles, but I mean, that was, you know, 14 cents a pack, poor. Um, and so our anniversary came up, um, and Sarah's like, let's do something fun. When you lived here, Tony, in California, what would you used to do? I, play video games, watch movies, like, sit in my room and waste my life. That was basically what I did. And she's like, no, but there's got to be something fun you could do. And I said, oh, well, no, I, I don't know. I've never really ventured too far outside of my own hometown. So she took it upon herself to find something really cool to do. And so without telling me, she blindfolded me and said, okay, sit down in the car. I'm going to take you somewhere. I have, a, I have a good sense of navigation. So she drove like in all these circles to confuse me and confound me. And then I had no idea where we were going. We drove about an hour and a half um, to a place called San Simeon. If anybody's familiar with Hearst Castle, it's where Hearst Castle is in California. San Simeon has this place, this beach, where elephant seals migrate. And they go and they come by the multitudes and they, and they have their babies. And there's fights because these big bull elephant seals have their harem of, of female elephant seals. And they try to challenge each other and they make these big, I can't even do the noise, like, oh, oh, type of a noise at each other. They got these long snouts and they fight. It's really amazing. So Sarah looked that up, she found it and she took me, but, I was, but being blindfolded for about an hour and a half, I don't know how people do it who get kidnapped because I, they, oh, oh, she took it off my eyes, I couldn't see. The light was blinding. Everything was blurry. I could make out shapes and certain things. I could see her if she was right here, but my eyes were so disoriented, I couldn't make out what was going on. It took a good, I don't know, hour of standing there straining my eyes to try to be able to focus and see the obvious greatness that was in front of me. And once I could see and focus, once I understood, or, or once I could uh, deal with the overwhelming sense of light and everything, um, I could enjoy and experience what was before me. And to this day, it's one of our favorite places on the planet. We've gone there several times just to watch elephant seals bark and, and watch the little babies kind of go around on their stomach. It's just really fun. I share that story with you because our new sermon series is based on the book of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And we call it the darkness and the light because John uses this metaphor or parable of light and darkness coming against each other and light overcoming darkness. But as, as non-believers, as new Christians, and even as, as mature Christians or ones that are, are being sanctified and processed, Sometimes the light can be so disorienting. The perfect, pure, holy light of Jesus, it, it, it hits us in such a way that we, we have a hard time fathoming it. And so we see others who seem to be in the light and enjoying the light and we're confounded. I don't get it. What is, what is wrong with me that I can't see the light that Jesus is that others seem to be experiencing? The problem is that when we're in the darkness for so long, The light can be blinding, overwhelming, disorienting. And it takes us some time to be able to focus on Jesus. There are those, and we can't stand these people, 
who just right away love Jesus, run away, become mission. We don't really dislike them. I'm joking. But they, they, we look at them from afar and go, man, they just, they just got up and ran and didn't even ask any questions. Like they're just doing stuff and they just get the word and they're always praying. I was in my prayer closet for six hours today. Don't you have a job? Yeah, I didn't sleep. Oh my gosh, how did you do that? And we, lo- we love those people. We honestly do. But not all of us are like that, at least not right away. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll be built up, we'll grow up, and we'll, we'll be like that someday, but we're not like that out of the gate. We exercised the, the, the smallest amount of faith we possibly could. Maybe we didn't even understand what we were really doing. We just knew that something was drawing us to this person named Jesus, that there was this truth that was only found here in this person and in his word that couldn't be found anywhere else, and you have no other answers but that. The light that Jesus is can be a bit blinding and disorienting. What's meant to be a pleasure and a joy and life-giving can be confounding. And so J, uh, excuse me, John is writing a general letter, a circulatory letter that will go out to many churches to explain this, but he's not just going to explain this truth. Unfortunately, he's got to undo a lot of false teaching. Much of our ministry here at the, at the chapel is to do the same exact thing, to undo a lot of the things that we've learned, whether we learn them just out of trust or maybe we learn them from people who are trying to manipulate us. But we learn things that aren't gospel-centered or Jesus-oriented or, or found in the word. We find them in extra biblical teachings. We find them in theory, but we don't find them in the word of God. Now, there are practices that we will do that are found outside of the word of God. The problem comes when we claim that they come from the word of God and use that authority to to impose our will or to impose our our ideology or our methods. Methods for the church are open-handed. What works for us may not work for another church and vice versa. What we're trying to do is preach the gospel to as many people as would hear it before we leave this earth. And so how we do that must be done in spirit and in truth, but, but honestly, it will look different for each person. Just sharing our own testimony is gonna be different for each person because we were all saved at different places and different times and, and we saw our sin in different ways and, and, and John's gotta go and he's gotta undo a lot of what these false teachers have done. Um, today, we're just gonna be introduced to the book go through the first couple of verses. We're not gonna go too deep, too fast. We're gonna just, we're gonna understand the background and the context of the book. When you understand the context of the book, it kind of opens up some of what we read of the Bible and say, I don't understand that. For example, Ephesians 4 and 11 says that God uh, gave us teachers along with uh, shepherds and evangelists and apostles and prophets as a gift to the church. John will in his epistle say, Uh, You don't need any teachers. Okay, so God gave us teachers that we didn't need. God's wasting his time by giving us a gift we can't use, so he's wasting our time too. Do these two things contradict one another? As, As so many people who refute the Bible will say that the Bible does. Context teaches us that John was reading, uh, t- writing rather, to a group of people who were falling under the te- teachings of something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, uh, Gnostic meaning uh, knowledge or in the know, they taught that, that Jesus could be found with secret knowledge. If any of you are familiar with Scientology and the sort of ladder of uh, revelation or, or enlightenment that they kind of follow, it's very similar to that. 
that only a select few have this knowledge so only a select few can teach this knowledge and so only a select few will receive that knowledge from these teachers. John is going to write to the church, you don't need secret knowledge, you don't need secret teachers. You don't need teachers who only have access. Everything I've ever taught or preached from this pulpit can be found by you. It's not something only I have. Maybe my story about the elephant seals is something I have that you don't, but that's not Bible. The Bible is available to every man, every woman, every child, and its revelation is not dependent upon how smart you are or how smart I am, praise God for that, but it's dependent upon the Holy Spirit revealing to you the truth found therein. And so John's gotta, John's gotta come against that. God, John's gotta say, look, this, this way you've been taught for so long is not only wrong, it's heresy. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what we know about Jesus. John was a disciple slash apostle of Jesus. I love John. Oh, I wished, I wished that I could have known John. He probably would have beat the tar out of me because I get the impression that, that he was just a, a, a man who was not afraid to throw down at a, at a moment's notice. He was a fisherman, which is not, you know, go sit on a lake and drink beer type of fisherman. This is a man who did it by profession. He probably was very strong, I'm guessing. Some of this is speculation, so take it with a grain of salt. Uh, he had a brother named James. Jesus gave them nicknames, the sons of thunder. Can you think, I mean, can you imagine Jesus loves you, but then he gives you a nickname? And that could be taken one of two ways. Maybe sons of thunder is like they're mighty, but sons of thunder because they're a little, you know, they're not as quick as they should be because thunder comes after lightning, right? Um, either way, how cool was it to get a nickname from Jesus? One that you could, it's almost like a WWE wrestler tag team name, the sons of thunder, um, or, or so, you know, like a lounge bar act, Jesus and the sons of thunder. Like, it's just a great name. It also speaks to the intimacy that John had with Jesus. You know, Jesus had 12 disciples and there's three that were always mentioned, James, John, and Peter. Um, some of us, we, we, we long for really deep relationships with a multitude of people. Um, some of that can be misdirected. It, it's not, it's not, it's coming from a place of identity rather than a place of relationship. Look to Jesus. Jesus had 12 guys he traveled with and three of them were like the inner circle, not excluding everybody else, but they were the ones that always seemed to be in the center of what he was doing. They were there at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were there at the, uh, uh, when Jesus sweated great drops of blood before, the, um, uh, before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, they're always the ones that are most vocal. They're always stepping out and, and, and saying things, even dumb things. James and, and John were amongst those who were fighting as to who was going to sit next to Jesus in eternity. Jesus had to rebuke them. They weren't always saying the right things, but man, they were, they were guys that seemingly kind of took Jesus at his word and just followed him. James, or excuse me, yeah, James and John were the sons of Zebedee. James, not the brother of Jesus, but James, the brother of John. They, they dropped, they were, along with Andrew and Peter, they dropped their nets, they left. They gave up their profession. They gave up not just the profession, but their family, uh, the family job, the family tradition. They left their father to go follow Jesus. John was most likely the youngest of all the disciples. Um, in the book of John, the gospel that he wrote, he's referred to as the, the disciple that Jesus loved. Can you imagine for a moment walking the earth with Jesus and being like his best friend? 
I mean, I mean, this is a reality that we can, that we can have as well, but, but this is a little different. John was an amazing man. Now, John wasn't a sinless man. John wasn't perfect, but God is giving us a, a man as an example of what it's like when a, when a man really forsakes himself and becomes a man in the eyes of God. He outlived all the other apostles and disciples, uh, the, the original 12. Uh, Judas committed suicide. The other 10 were all martyred in some way. Um, but it wasn't for lack of trying. John was, uh, they attempted to kill him several times, including boiling him in oil. It is said that uh, in the later years of his life, he bore the scars of being boiled alive uh, on, the on his body for the rest of his life. He lived to be probably around 90 to 95 years old. He wrote this book around that time, about uh, 90 AD. It's one of the last letters written from the New Testament, uh, date-wise. Um, and it's shortly before his exile to the Isle of Patmos. What happened was John wouldn't die. John wouldn't shut up about Jesus. So the powers that be decided, well, let's put him in a cave on an island somewhere so that he stops preaching the gospel, which is contrary to what we got going on because we got a good thing. and We can't have some other God supplanting the emperor and our governmental system, speaking of Rome. What happens? God reveals to him the end times in this cave. We call it the revelation it's, in, it's the last book of the Bible, and as you read the last book of the Bible, it's amazing. It is confounding and challenging, but as you read it, you start seeing the parallels of what God did with the children of Israel to lead them out of Egypt. A lot of the, the plagues and the things that are gonna be happening happened then as well. You see the God of consistently, again, being consistent. So Jane, uh, excuse me, John is the author of not only the Gospel of John, but these three epistles or, or, or short letters as well as the revelation uh, of Jesus Christ in uh, the last book of the Bible. I love that he couldn't be stopped. You know, we as a culture, we're stopped so easily. Like, I believe in this. Well, I'm gonna talk louder than you. Okay, I'll stop. Somebody shouts just a little too loud or gets a little too in our face and we just back down. Now I'm all for candor and tact and being uh, as gentle always as much as you can. The Bible speaks to this to being as, uh, as gentle and as peaceable as you possibly can. But standing, sometimes we're gonna stand and just let stuff just, it's just gonna be falling on us. I think about the Christians who were fed to lions in the Roman uh, Colosseums. Many of them just stood there singing psalms as the lions were released and they were attacked. There was no fighting back. There was no demanding of rights. There was no, uh, no Christian lives matter. There was none of that. It was just, this is our fate. This is what the Lord is going to do. We're going to glorify him in this. And there's a time to fight, but there are times often where, you know what? This is it. This is the time where we stop. This is the time where Jesus is most glorified in this moment and we trust him in that. John could not be stopped. I hope that of, many, of the many lessons we'll go through in this series, I hope that's one of the lessons we take home that we cannot be stopped in the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the gospel of Jesus will not be stopped in us, that we'll experience it, that we'll live it. It won't just be a theory or, or something we speak about, but it'll be a real tangible thing that is our life. It won't just be an accent or, or, or a side dish to our life. It'll be all of our life. The gospel of Jesus will be what makes our heart beat and make our heart sing. Amen. James, excuse me, John, I'm gonna keep calling him James. John wrote this about 90 AD. Um, he died, he's the only apostle to die a natural death. He wrote this because to combat false doctrine, to reveal the light of Jesus in the, uh, against the darkness. 
His point was to exalt Jesus through truth, to expose false doctrine and teachers, to confirm the faith of true believers. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I just question, Lord, am I really, am I really believing you? Like, is my faith really in you? Is my faith in what I want or is my faith in what you are and who you say you are? Is my faith in my own, my own ideas or in my own doctrines or is my, my faith in what you have said and what you have proclaimed? I believe it's healthy to be skeptical of ourselves from time to time. The Bible is, is sure to reassure us when we come to those times that there are ways to know if our faith is genuine and if we truly are saved. Jesus is revealed in a multitude of ways in this book. He's revealed as God, as deity. He's not just a God or one of many gods. He is God. Along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God, he is the second member of that. As much of that is, uh, or excuse me, as much as that is a mystery, it's how God reveals himself to us from Genesis to the end of Revelation. He is this triune, three persons in one, uh, equal yet different, Different functions, yet all in the same position. For example, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit do not die on the cross for us. God the Son does. God the Son does not send the Father to us. He sends us the Holy Spirit. Each one having different offices and different functions, but yet all of them equal together. He's revealed as man. This, this is a mystery as well because God was not, or excuse me, Jesus was not just God or just man. He was fully God and fully man. The Gnostics, again, they taught, well, Jesus couldn't have been a man, that he died on the cross when he died. It wasn't really death because he was a spirit. So it was just all for show. And so he's not really a man. John's got John's to come against that. He's got to say, no, look, he was fully God, but he was fully man as well. If he's not fully man, then his blood is not shed and our sins are not forgiven. A spirit dying upon a cross, again, why the Son is sent and not the Holy Spirit the son is sent to die a real death for our real sins so that we could really be forgiven. He's going to be revealed by a couple of different attributes or titles. He's our advocate or defender. Think about a defense attorney in a courtroom, someone who stands up for you to answer for you, to protect you, to speak on your behalf. The Bible calls Satan and his name literally means accuser. He's come against us to accuse us of our sin to remind God, to stand before him and tell them all of the things that we've done and rightly deserve wrath for. But Jesus will defend us. He is our advocate. He will tell the Father, no, he stands in me. I, I and him are one. He has been forgiven by my blood. Through his faith in me, he is now in my righteousness. He'll be revealed as our propitiation, which is a word we never use outside of church, but it literally means substitute. That Jesus stood in place of us when we rightly deserved wrath. Jesus stood in that place so that we might be forgiven. See, we don't teach that sin is something to toy with. That sin is something that, oh, everybody does. It's not a big deal. We believe all sin is a big deal. We talked about a couple weeks ago when we talked about sexuality, how we often say, well, all sin is equal. And what we do is we take sin that maybe, you know, murder and homosexuality and, 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 and adultery, we bring those down to things like lying. And we, we make everything sort of a light offense. Everything is not, or excuse me, everything is a heavy offense Amen. before God. The Bible says that sin is like, creates enmity between us and God, war, division between us and God. So we take lying and cheating and stealing and adultery and everything you find in the Ten Commandments and everything that Jesus said to us, we take those and we put them all in the same field. It's all bad. 
And we don't try to uh, sugarcoat or candy coat anything and try to brush anything aside. And that leads to a lot of awkward conversations. It leads to a lot of, of, of anger between Christians because sometimes we call out each other on things because that's what we do. We're, we're brothers and sisters. We do that. Say, hey, you know, you're, you're carrying fire. You're gonna get burned. No, no, I'm gonna be fine. Who do you know? Quit judging me. No, I'm not gonna judge you when you're burned and scarred by this. I just pray that you come. I'm gonna pray for you so that you'll see that. And then come around, yeah, you know I got burned. And that was the worst. But the book of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John reveals Jesus as our propitiation or our substitute so that we don't suffer for our sins, we are forgiven of our sins. He's revealed as our savior alone. Many people have functional saviors. Many of you have functional saviors. If you just have this in your life, you're gonna be okay. I guarantee you the moment that's ripped from your life, you will understand that that was a thing in the place of the true savior. You might acknowledge Jesus as your savior, but if those things are taken away from you and you run for the hills, ah, your savior was something other than Jesus. Maybe it's money, your job, your relationships, your kids. That's why many parents freak out when their kids move out. It's been all about their children for so long and now their children are not all about them. They're starting their own families. They're starting their own lives and they can't be their child like they used to be and the parents don't know what to do. Their identity is totally wrecked because their identity was in their children somehow being their functional savior. Or when you lose a job or you lose money or when you lose anything. A pain of loss is a real thing and I'm not here to downplay that part of it. Mourning is a real thing. The Bible tells us to mourn with those who mourn. I'm not here to say that mourning is not a thing that you will do. What I'm saying is, is when those things are taken from you and it devastates you for too long, when it takes too much out of you, when, when Jesus's comfort for you is no longer enough, then maybe that was your savior and not Jesus. John will reveal Jesus is our savior alone. Our goal, our path is leading to a life where no matter what's taken from us, if we still have Jesus, we're gonna be okay. We're saying, blessed be your name. He gives and takes away. It's the, it's the position that Job was in. Job lost everything, but yet still said those words, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. He lost his kids, he lost his income, he lost his wealth, he lost his uh, material goods. His wife turned his back on him, and yet he still said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now he sat for seven days in, sack, uh, in ashes and sackcloth with his friends who didn't say anything, and then, then they had this big debate as to why this all happened. But he starts from a place of worship, even in the midst of great loss. And John will teach us Jesus is our savior. A man who was, a, had been attempted, or people had attempted to kill him time and time again, would sit there and say, no, Jesus is my savior. Exiled to an island in a cave. For some of you with kids, you're like, man, that sounds like a good vacation. But this is not like that. Um, and yet God's still using him and God's still being his savior. Lastly, he reveals Jesus as returning. We as the modern church, we kind of lost sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back. We've lost sight of the fact that one of the greatest promises of the Bible is that Jesus will return, that this world will end, and all things will be made right. If you read the book of Genesis, you realize everything was just messed up by Adam and Eve. Their disobedience and rebellion just ruined everything. Right out of the gate, one of their kids murders the other kid. I mean, it's just, it's bad from, from seemingly day one with those two. But Jesus comes to make all things new. Jesus comes to change everything. And Jesus will return, like really return. The Bible speaks of us seeing him with our eyes, 
coming in the clouds, that there will be, uh, uh, Matthew 24 speaks of this greatly. We're gonna talk about that in the annual meeting. That it'll be like lightning going across the sky. It'll be obvious. You will see him. There'll be no question as to what is happening the day Jesus returns. And for us saints, it'll be a glorious day. Oh man, we'll be like, yes, finally. Finally, oh my gosh, we've waited for so long. But for non-Christians, it'll be a really, really, really bad day. Like worst of days. So until then, you have a chance to make it the good day. So that being said, all of that together, kind of, I hope you took notes. I hope you kind of got some background on uh, why John is writing, who John is. Uh, you know, there's so much more to know about him and there's so much more we don't know about him because the Bible does tell us very little about him. But that being said, let's read 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray one more time. Jesus, your word is perfect and good. And as we embark on this journey through this amazing letter that your servant John wrote, help us to simply feast from it, not add to it, not take from it, but simply let the gospel preach itself. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John wrote this letter a good 30 years, three decades, after most of the other books of the Bible. Paul wrote many of his books in, in, in the 50s and 60s AD. Um, James, I believe, wrote his somewhere between 40 and 50 AD. Most likely, John was familiar with many of the writings of Paul and, uh, and Peter and Jude and Matthew. He would have been familiar with the other gospels. He wrote his gospel much later than the other three. John doesn't bring us secondhand testimony. John starts right off at the bat. I'm bringing to you Jesus. I've sat with Jesus. I've talked to Jesus. I've eaten with Jesus. I've touched Jesus. In, in, the, in, the, in the Last Supper, John is the one that reclines against Jesus. Remember, the Gnostics are teaching that Jesus is spirit. He's not man. He couldn't possibly be man because flesh is evil. John, right out of the bat, says, no, no, no. This is the one that we've seen and felt and been with and talked to and learned from. We've seen him with our own eyes. And he calls him the word of life. John in his gospel, if you read the gospel of John and these letters from John, you see the continuity John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In, in the 30, uh, who knows how many years between the writing of the gospel and the writing of this letter, nothing's changed in John's eyes. Jesus is still Jesus. And so John doesn't bring theories about Jesus. He doesn't bring ideas or opinions about Jesus. He brings the truth about Jesus. As teachers and preachers and ministers of the gospel, our opinions don't matter. Well, I think this about, I think he's a good teacher. I think, you know, what we think is secondary. 
Well, I think Jesus had long hair. I think he had short hair. Who cares? That is not eternal or life-giving in the least. I think Jesus was rich. I think Jesus was poor. I see a man who survived with no job, with no house, with no income, but yet ministered for three years consistently. Was he rich? Was he poor? I don't know. Either way, he got the job done. Hey, you need to pay taxes. Go over there and fish and you'll find a coin in the belly of a fish. If he was rich, why didn't he just pull a coin out of his pocket? I don't, is it more dramatic this way? I, I don't know. I know it's pretty awesome to catch a fish and find a coin inside to pay the exact taxes you need to find or need to pay. Throughout the gospel, or throughout this letter, I should say, John is going to refer to Jesus as the light. We are called to be light as well, but not our own light. Not just positivity, not just sunshine and rainbows and cupcakes. I mean, this is a light that comes and emanates straight from the Lord, straight from Jesus. Something that is implanted in you through faith in him. Sometimes we wake up and we don't feel like the light. Sometimes we sin and we know we're not the light. But here's the thing about the light. The source is not dependent upon us. I love that about Jesus. I love that he knows my proclivities. He knows where I will fail. He knows how, how I fall short of his glory. So instead of just encouraging me to try harder, he gives to me his light. He doesn't just expect you to try harder, though we will try and we will do all that we can. He expects you to take the light that he has given you and shine that into the world. That the darkness in you first would be dissipated by his light and then that light would come through you. Here's the thing about light and darkness. They can't coexist, can they? If it's dark and light is turned on, darkness goes. The only way to rid yourself of the darkness of sin, Satan, and death is through the light of Jesus Christ. If you're doing it by your own efforts, well, I'll just do this, that, and this, and that'll make things right. You're just a blind man in a dark room looking for the doorknob. You're never gonna find it. But you give your life to Christ. Lord, I put my faith in you. You are the son of God. You have died for my sins. I am a sinner in need of saving. Through faith alone, the light shines and you can see. It's one of the most amazing things to give your life to Christ and then to begin to see the world through that light. It's like that day when, when I was blinded and then I could see the elephant seals and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This has been in front of me the whole time, but I couldn't see it. I couldn't make it out, but now I can. Now I can see. I was blind, but now I see. And none of us are gonna see Jesus as he's completely to be known. The book of 1 Corinthians says that we see him now through a mirror dimly. Like if you ever looked at yourself through a bad mirror, you kind of see your face, you make out the outline, you don't see it completely, but you see it. Bible says there'll be a day where we'll see him face to face. We'll see him as he is to be seen or we'll know him as he is to be known. But for now, we have all that we need to be the light in this world, to drive out the darkness first in us and then in the world. You are called to experience Christ. You're not called to live vicariously through uh, your pastor or a good teacher or an author or an evangelist. Oh, they have a really vibrant relationship with the Lord. I'll just kind of, I was kind of attached myself to that. No, you're called. You have been called by Christ. You have been, uh, you have been, uh, Jesus has died for you specifically. All of us collectively, but you specifically. He desires, longs for a relationship with you. He wants to know 
you. He wants you to know him. The last verse I want to look at here where, where John says, he says, we've seen him. He's manifest to us, all this. We proclaim it to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now that some translations will say your joy will be complete. Here's, the pro- here's why it's different. Here's why sometimes it's our and sometimes it's your because it's both. It's not just we're writing to this so you guys can have your joy be full. We're not writing this so that our joy could be full. It's so that our joy can be full. See, our joy is incomplete when we're just by ourselves. When we just know Jesus by ourselves, we have joy, but it's not complete, mature. It's not coming to complete fruition when we are separated. It's why division in the church is so volatile and why it's so dangerous. When there's issues, we address them as much as we can. We do our best to bring things into the light because God's gonna do it anyways. But we can't live, when somebody has disagreement or something said, we gotta do something about it. Because division will lead to bitterness and that will lead to people leaving under the wrong reasons and circumstances. People leave churches all the time for right reasons. We hate for them to leave for the wrong reasons. We don't want them to leave their faith in Jesus because somebody said something stupid or flippantly or that something they didn't think was that big a deal, but the person receiving it thought it was a big deal. Our joy is complete when we're together. I've spoken much about unity and uniformity. We have to be united. We have to be on the same team. We have to be going in the same direction, but we don't all have to be uniform. We don't all have to like the same thing. Out of the six worship songs that we sung today, I guarantee you if I pulled you all, none of you would like all the same six songs <laughs> or, or, or all of those six songs. You might like two or three and despise the other three and vice versa. None of us would be on the same page. We don't all have to, the, first of all, the music's not for you, by the way. The music's for Christ. We're worshiping him. But that being said, we don't have to all like the same music. There's some stuff I hear on Caleb and I, and I, I cringe when I hear it. Oh my gosh, this is, really they're playing this? This is not, this seems like they're exalting man, not God. This isn't a worship song. There's old hymns, I, I, same thing. Like, oh, could they use a, an actual English word at some point? Like, I don't talk like this. But then there's other hymns. Oh, I hear them and they, and they just melt me. It's like, oh my gosh, Lord. Those words were so poignantly put together. You read stories about, uh, one of my favorite stories is the story of the man who wrote, um, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio Spatford was his name. And he, what happened was he sent, uh, he, was, he was sailing across from America to Europe and he sent his family ahead of them and they died in a sinking ship. And so in response, he wrote, It Is Well With My Soul. The song is all about how no matter what life can bring to you, I will be okay because I have Jesus. See, when somebody just writes that theoretically, it's a good song. But when somebody who's just lost his three young, beautiful daughters and his wife of who knows how many years, when that comes from that place of heartbreak, it means so much more. It's a song that's purchased with blood and you can't conjure that. You can't manufacture that. And there's songs that have been written recently, uh, contemporary, and I was like, wow, that is, that man is anointed or that woman is anointed to, to write songs that glorify Jesus. We don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to like the same thing. 
We don't all have to do the same thing in our free time. We don't have to have the same profession. We're not going to start a commune and start growing hemp and, and trying to go to farmer's markets and then secretly, you know, try to evangelize. We're not going to have some weird gated up community where nobody can go out and only a select few can come in. That's a cult. We, we can all be different. We can all go home today and do something different this afternoon after the meeting. <laughs> we, can, we can all, my favorite, what's, my favorite thing, absolute favorite thing to do after church on a Sunday, nap. <laughs> you cannot buy a better nap than the nap that comes after a good church service. Some of you got to go to work. I'm getting a lot of amens from the men especially, not from the moms and wives I'm noticing, but that's okay. What's a nap? It's one of the other gifts that the Lord has given us. It's, I can nap any other day of the week, theoretically, it will, not be, it will not be as joyful or as pleasing as the one on Sunday afternoon. To curl up on the couch, kids throw in a movie, lay next to my wife. I'm generally the only one that falls asleep, but I love that nap. It is good. Now, some of you have to go to work. Some of you are going to go home, and when it gets warmer, you're going to grill, or you're going to do some work around the house, or work on the car, or you're going to just do something, anything else. You're going to play video games. You're going to read a book. You're going to have a cup of tea. You're just going to do something. We don't all have to do the same thing. You don't have to like naps the way I do. Maybe, maybe your favorite thing to do on a Sunday afternoon is have dinner with your family. To have people come over to your house and cook a meal for them and just talk about the day and talk about what's happened in this past week. To pray for each other and to just to be with one another. Maybe your favorite thing to do is to go shopping at Walmart. You're crazy because Sunday afternoon, I swear, if you go to Walmart on a Sunday afternoon, it's like three notches above hell. I'm pretty sure because... There's three registers and four billion people. We have 6,000 people in Canastota and who knows how many in Oneida, but they're all at Walmart on Sunday afternoon, I guarantee you. Take me now, Lord Jesus. I do not want to endure this anymore. But our joy, the joy of the Lord, the joy that is not conjured up. I mean, there's things that make us happy, right? The nap makes me happy. You know, a, a good tell. Anybody watch the show, This Is Us? just cry all the time, but it's so joyful. It's like, oh, I just, I just, I'm done crying. And, you know, maybe that's not you. That's, that's just, that's making yourself happy. Going to, going to, let's see, what's one of my favorite things? Going to the store with my kids and they sell these Lego minifigures and they sell them in a pack, but you can't see what you get. And standing there for a good hour and feeling the pack to see who's in what. Okay, I feel, this is a battering. This is Batman. This is, we got Batman for an hour. I love it. Oh, but I can make that happen, right? I can just go to Walmart. I can just go do it. We're not talking about that kind of joy or happiness. We're talking something about something that comes straight from the Lord to you. It's a joy inexplicable. It's a joy that does not rely upon you. That's the glory of it. It's not about what you can do to conjure up the joy. It's the joy that the Lord gives you. And this joy is partially incomplete without the collection of the saints. It's why we get together as, as a church family, as a body. It's why we do stuff. Because our joy is incomplete in and of ourselves. We have it, we experience it, but it's more full, if that's even a proper way to put that, when we are together. And J J John says, I'm writing to you so that our joy might be complete. Church, there are going to be times where we're walking. The Christian life is going to be difficult and hard. 
You're going to have to make choices. You're going to have to say things that, you know, if given the choice, you wouldn't. Jesus understands this. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion prayed in a garden, sweating so profusely that blood, his blood vessels began to break and he began to sweat drops of blood. He said, Father, may this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will be done. There are going to be times like that, but there's going to be times of great joy. There are going to be times where the Lord does things in your life that you yourself could never make happen, and it will be there because Jesus did it. Any of you ever have a mom or a dad just do something for you? You didn't earn it. You didn't ask for it. Or maybe you did, but you just knew it was the well, mom and dad can't. You're at an age where like, mom and dad can't afford this. Just, just can't, you know. And you, and you just show up one day and mom and dad has done that thing for you. You're like, oh my gosh. I know. And in that moment, you realize how hard mom and, mom and dad work. Maybe you're old enough to realize that every, every dollar that was put into this thing, whatever it is, was so many hours of their life at work. How they sacrificed so that they could give you this thing. And their only motivation to give it to you was love. I'm a very blessed man. I had parents who would do things like that. And, and, and if you didn't, I'm, I'm very sorry. And I, and I wish that life had given you something else. I've also learned my parents are human. And your parents are human too. Many of them failed because they were ill-equipped. But nevertheless, it's like that. The Lord just shows up and, like, what did I do to deserve this? Nothing. Your Lord just loves you so much. And for me, speaking of my own life, those moments, I don't walk away from them arrogantly like, oh, I'm so great. I, in that moment, realize my sin more. It's the weirdest thing. I, I think to myself, I'm not, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not, I'm not holy enough. I'm not righteous enough. I haven't done enough things. I can name off five or six different things I've done this morning that could probably get me excommunicated or kicked out of heaven. But yet the Lord, his love's not dependent on what you can do. It's dependent on what he wants to do. There are times of great reward. Hebrews 11 and 6 says that he rewards those who believe in him. He does. And sometimes rewards are for actions that you've committed. That's a good thing. But there are times where it's for no other reason than God loves you. Look at your spouse. Now I'm going to share a little bit more. My wife and I met on the internet in 1999. AOL chat room. Talking about Woodstock 99 in Rome, New York. And she told me, I live like 15 minutes from Rome. And I was just like, to me, Rome was this magical land where <laughs> this great music festival was going to happen. Of course, they would choose this great place to have such an iconic music festival. Multitudes of the best bands on the planet uh, at the time are going to be there. So surely she must live in this glorious place. I love that Lisa and Bob are laughing at that because... If you, if you haven't been to Rome, go to Rome. It's, and then quickly leave Rome. <laughs> leave the car running and come back as fast as you can. And if you're being followed, go to Herkimer. And then come back from there too. <laughs> um, so we met and we started talking. And before I ever met Sarah physically, I proposed to her. I asked her to marry me. And then she came out there and then I moved out here. And then we moved back out here. 
uh, or excuse me, out back to California and we needed a job. So Sarah went to a place called Lens Crafters and Lisa was the manager and Bob was my best friend and Lisa wanted a boyfriend and we said, <gasps> Bob, actually I didn't, Sarah did. Sarah said, Bob. And so then they started talking on the internet and then they got married. And how long have you guys been married now? Like 12 years? It'll be 12 years this year? 12 years this year, math. <laughs> but do you see how the Lord, I mean, we did nothing. You know what I you know what my part of that was? I put, I think it was $1,200 on a gateway credit card to buy a computer when I had a job that paid me like $7 an hour. It was the most ridiculous thing I probably ever did, except for the fact that it resulted in me getting a really awesome wife and great kids and Bob getting a wife uh, and great kids and grandkids now. And who knows how else that web kind of just goes out there. I look back and go, why, what? How did that even happen? The Lord. I, I have no other explanation than the Lord opened doors I unbeknownst to myself walked through them to find this great joy that I could not find myself. See, the Lord is good. That's just one of, one of the few testimonies I have. One time, just a couple weeks ago, I found $20 at Sonic Burger. Another great story. It is a great story. I had no $20, then I had $20, and I got Sonic Burger. I mean, that's a good day in anybody's book. My point is this, there are just days where it's going to be really good and there are days where it's going to be really hard. But at the end of the day, you're gonna say, Lord, I know that you are God. Today tried to boil me in oil, but I'm still standing because of you. Your joy is most complete, not when you're by yourself hoarding what God gives you, but when you are together, collective with the saints, worshiping Jesus. And the world can't extinguish that light. It simply cannot. Don't manufacture your light. Let the light come from Jesus. Share the testimony you have, what the Lord has done for you, what the Lord has done with you, what he's doing now, what he's done then, the things you have hopes for, the things you have fears of, and let the Lord make your joy complete. Let's pray. Jesus, all of us want joy. All of us want to be filled with this great joy that only comes from you, Lord, a joy that has a different flavor than what the world can offer. It sustains in a different way than anything that can be offered on this plane, Lord. But we desire it. Your, your word reveals that we were built and made for it. And as much as we can experience it here, Lord, we want it, but we don't want it separate from you, Lord. That joy that we seek is a joy that only comes with you. Father, we want to be in your kingdom because you are the king of that kingdom. We want to be with you because as Peter said, you have the words of life. Where else will we go? So Father, today, may you reveal to us uh, Satan and sin, they're gonna do their best to steal from us, to rob from us this great joy that you have for us. May we stand in obstinance. May we stand in rebellion against them and not allow our joy to be stolen by them, to hold on to you, thus securing the joy you have for us. Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't, hasn't given their life to you, Lord, I pray today is that day, the day where they call upon your name. Your word says in the book of Romans that any person who calls on your name will not be put to shame. There's not really a wrong way to do this as long as their faith is placed in you and your sacrifice. 
that they recognize you as the son of God, that though they are sinners, they have been saved by a great God and that you are that God. Lord, I pray now as they're praying and as they're they're hearing from you and, and, and maybe even fighting and resisting you, Lord, may this be a moment where they let go, where they let go and give their lives to you. Father, for those who are backslidden or maybe know this truth and have wandered away from it today, Lord, as we sung in Come Thou Fount, you know, we're just so prone to wander. But Lord, bring us back. I thank you, Lord, that you're, there's no place out of your reach. There's no thicket that's too complicated for you to pull us out of. I pray today that they'd be pulled from that thicket and saved, that the one that's left the 99 will be back and welcome to the fold. And Lord, for those of us who are just, we're here and we're plugging away and we've, we may not know what else to do, Lord, I'm praying for newness, Lord. A newness that only you can provide. A, a, a breath of fresh spiritual air, Lord, that will change everything. And in all these things, may you be glorified. We don't want to glorify ourselves. We don't want to make ourselves seem really big and great, Lord. You are big and great. You are good. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.